0: Great to have you along for some more half assed history this week on the agenda. Again, we're having a chat about yet more of the weirdest deaths in history. We're going back to the buffet for a fourth helping the greedy little piggies that we are. Uh, We've already talked about 30 of the weirdest deaths from throughout history in previous episodes. 126, 174, 241, get across them. But dying remains as popular now as it was then, and lots of people have done it. Uh, even if you personally haven't gotten around to it just yet, I'm, I'm sure you will eventually. Although, no rush, of course, there's no rush. Plenty of time to die in an interesting way later on. For now, just chill out, enjoy the ride. There's so much wonderful stuff that life has to offer you, such as Tinpot History Podcasts, for instance. Just one little example there that's worth sticking around for, surely. Anyway. When you finally do get around to it, if you're lucky or I guess if you're unlucky, you might do it in a way that is weird, amusing, entertaining or ridiculous enough to be talked about on a Tin Pot History podcast hundreds or even thousands of years later, which is what we're going to do today. It's the same deal as ever with part four, 10 very amusing deaths from throughout history. We've got people dying in weightlifting accidents, uh, getting killed by turnips and best of all, of course, dying on the toilet, everyone's favourite. We're going to go through these ten deaths today in chronological order, um, and so I do want to say very quickly that uh, some of the earliest stories that we're going to talk about today aren't um, well. Look, they're not the easiest. They're not the easiest things to verify. So for the first two or three of these deaths, understand there there might have been a bit ex- a bit of exaggeration involved as these tales were passed down through the centuries. We're not on the rock solid historical footing that I prefer to be with some of these stories but look bugger it they're good yarns so whatever let's get stuck in here let's get stuck in with the latest installment of a half ass history favorite here history's weirdest deaths part four let's get into it we're going all the way back here we're going all the way back to the year 581 BCE for our first unusual death today all the way back to ancient China. And the poor bloke in question for this story is a duke. His name is Duke Jing of Jin. He was the ruler of the state of Jin, uh, one of the major powers during the time in ancient Chinese history known as the Spring and Autumn period. Now, Duke Jing, he, he did all the usual stuff you'd expect from a powerful ruler, went off to war here and there, he won some, he lost some, you know, odd bit of conquest, jostled with the other major powers at the time, like the Chu and the Qi, you know, just... He played all the hits, but we're not here to talk about that. We're here to talk about how the bloke died, because it's a very entertaining story indeed. story goes like this. In 581 BCE, 18 years into his reign, poor old Duke Jing, he, uh, he falls ill. He's not well, the poor bugger. He realises that he's in no shape to look after his realm. Uh, not sure how old he was at this point. Um, uh, after almost 20 years in charge, he's probably not a young bloke, but we just don't know his age. Uh, sorry about that. Anyway. He decides that enough is enough for him. He, he abdicates in favour of his son, who becomes Duke Li. and um, Jing, uh, after having abdicated, he seeks a way to improve his health and his overall condition. After a very disturbing dream that featured an evil spirit coming after him, he decides to consult with a Wu, uh, a shaman, essentially, or a, a sorcerer, a practitioner of the mystical arts. Now, this Wu, after Jing comes to him, he, uh, he makes a prophecy. And I'll tell you, this is not a good one. He prophesizes that Jing will not live to eat the next harvest's wheat. And this is bad bloody news for our mate Jing because the harvest is due to come in a pretty bloody soon. So Jing, he's having a bloody terrible time. He's he's scared half to death, to be honest. He's having more awful dreams about his condition. And in an effort to try to cure himself, he calls in the best doctors that he can find to try to come and treat him, including pinching a doctor from his old enemy, the Qi. Now, this Qi doctor, he did not have good news for Jing at all. After examining Jing, the doctor told him that the disease that he had had reached the Gao Huang, the region between the heart and the diaphragm, and that there was nothing that could be done. Jing's proverbial goose was cooked. And hell of a thing to hear from the doctor, bloody bugger bum, says Jing. I'm not happy with that. But he thanked the doctor for his assessment, paid him and sent him sent him on his way. But here's the thing, he doesn't die. Even as the harvest is being brought in, Jing is still not, not, I was going to say fit as a fiddle, definitely not fit as a fiddle, but maybe fit as a viola. Um, and and the, the harvest is being brought in. What's going on here? He's going to make it. He's going to prove the prophecy to be false. Certainly seems that way anyway. And sure enough, Jing is still around when the harvest is brought in, when the wheat is harvested. And so he decides to tell that bastard, bloody sorceress Wu to tell him exactly what he thinks of him. He orders the wheat uh, that was harvested to be cooked into a great big meal and he summons the woo to him and he shows him all this food. He says, see you prick, look at all this food, freshly made from this year's wheat it is. So you're talking out your bum and I tell you this, it'll be the last shonky prophecy you offer anyone, mate, because your cook guards grab him off with his head. I don't know if he's actually beheaded, but the woo was indeed executed. He'll never get anything wrong again, uh, except he didn't get it wrong. He didn't get it wrong at all because before Jing sat down to tuck into his feed, he said, oh. Got to go and bust a grumpy. Oh, no, 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 you, you you all start. Don't wait for me. I'll just run to the dunny. I'll be back before you know it. He heads off to the bog. He uh, drops his strides and falls in, you know, as you do. Just falls straight into the privy, falls down into the into the disgusting pit below. And, of course, he dies. So the Wu got it right after all. Jing never tasted the wheat from the harvest and died in an extremely unpleasant but also extremely funny way. Now, how much of this story is actually true is, of course, up for debate. I don't believe in shamans or sorcerers or prophecies or anything like that. But apparently this incident or the story surrounding it resulted in a famous classical Chinese saying, the disease has entered the huang," which essentially means that something is too far along to fix. We might say the horse is bolted in English, which... Sure, it's an it's a useful proverb, but it's a shame that Duke Jing's death didn't result in a saying along the lines of, uh, you know, don't count your chickens. For instance, don't execute the sorcerer before you've munched on the wheat, or you'll fall into a toilet and die. There we go. That's that's a much that's a much better saying. Let's see if we can get that one off the ground, shall we? We stay in ancient China for our next weird death, but uh, jump ahead a few a few hundred years to the year 307 BCE, the year that the young King Wu of Qin met his end. By now, we're in the Warring States period, and that is exactly what Wu's doing. He's fighting off the Han. Despite taking the throne at the age of 18, this bloke was going around feeding them the left and the right. He's getting stuck in, and he does a very good job of it too. He's giving the Han a proper hiding. He's driving them back, seizing key roads and cities. And it was in one of these cities that he seized that he met his end in the Zhao capital of Luoyang. King Wu was a great big burly bloke, strong as an ox, huge, big, rippling muscles, absolute hunk he was. He loved to wrestle, he loved to test and show off his strength, especially by lifting things to the wonderment of onlookers. And this is what he did, or at least it's what he tried to do in the Luoyang palace. Uh, The young king was as keen as ever to put his rig to work and impress the court. And this, unfortunately, was what brought about his untimely death when he was either challenged or encouraged to lift an enormous heavy bronze pot by another strongman, a bloke whose name was Meng Yue. Some accounts tell us that these two had a friendly relationship, others tell us that there was a degree of rivalry between them. I'm not sure what the exact truth was. In one account, Meng Yui lifted the cauldron without any problems before challenging the king to do the same, while in another, Meng Yui was more like a hype man for the king, telling him, oh, go on, your majesty, mate, you can do it, lift it up, off you go.'' Uh, but whatever the case, King Wu, he hefted this enormous pot aloft, muscles straining his body, barely keeping it together as he lifted this colossally heavy weight. Well, uh, actually, no, not even barely keeping it together. His body didn't keep it together at all because, uh, brace yourself for this one, hoo oh boy. Uh, as he uh, as he attempted to lift this, uh, this enormous cauldron, his shin bones snapped and splintered under the weight of it. And this is why you don't skip leg day. His legs buckled and snapped like twigs. The poor young bloke is in agony. He drops the cauldron and that's that for his career as a weightlifter. And also his career as a king and as an anything. Because later that night, blood started coming out of his eyes. And it wasn't long before he was stone cold dead. Killed by the weight of a bronze cauldron at just 21. And I think it's fair to say the weight of his own ego as well. As for Yue, well, again, depending on who you ask, he met, or may have met, a rather grisly fate as well. One of the accounts of the tale that I read, the one where he was cast as a rival to the king, said that because of his aggravation of the king's ego challenging him to this lifting contest, uh, the court decided that he was responsible for the king's death. And so Yue was executed, he was put to death, along with, most unfairly, his entire family. So how's this for another proverb that we could get going based on classical Chinese history? How about this one? Never challenge a king to a weightlifting contest. From ancient China to ancient Rome now for our next death, the death of Emperor Valerian in the 260s CE. We've already actually mentioned Valerian in a former Weirdest Deaths episode, the very first one, episode 126, Get Across It, but it wasn't his death that we talked about then. Valerian was the bloke going about persecuting Christians at the time that St. Lawrence was roasted alive. You might remember he was the uh, the turn me over, I'm well done on this side bloke. Well worth a listen to his story if you haven't already. Uh, St. Lawrence was taking the piss even as he was being burnt to death. But anyway, Valerian, Valerian, uh, he also had a weird and gruesome death too. Um, after spending his career as emperor going about getting after the Christians, suppressing rebellions, undertaking legal and financial reforms, and most notably fighting the Persians, he became the first ever Roman emperor to be taken prisoner in the year 260 when he was captured by the Persians during the Battle of Edessa. After he was captured, his, uh, his son Gallienus, uh, his co-emperor, became emperor in his own right and had to deal with the enormous political fallout and instability that came with the capture of a, of a living Roman emperor. But he didn't have it half as bad as poor old Valerian, his dad, who was treated absolutely abysmally by his Persian captors. We don't know how long Valerian survived as a prisoner. One estimate puts it at 264 CE. Uh, But for for however long he stuck around, it was an absolutely miserable experience for the poor bastard. He was beaten and starved. He was treated as the lowest of the low, even amongst other slaves. But there's one story, right, that tells us that the Persian emperor Shapur I used Valerian as a footstool. He would have the poor bastard get on all fours and use him to mount his horse and stuff like that. Total humiliation. Poor old Valerian. And after a while, he's had an absolute gutful of this treatment. He's had enough of it. And so he goes to Shapur and he offers him a huge ransom for his release back to the Romans. And apparently none of this is super well verified. But the story tells us that Shapur responded to this ransom request by stringing Valerian up and pouring molten gold down his throat to kill him. How's that for a ransom? And after his death, Valerian's corpse was skinned and then stuffed, and he was displayed as a trophy by Shapur, who really did not seem to have an ounce of chill in his entire body. Holy moly. Nasty bloody way to go, you'll agree. I I think I'd prefer to just go back to being used as a mounting block, to be honest. The French Duke Godfrey IV of Lower Lorraine, often referred to as Godfrey the Hunchback, had his rule cut short in 1076 by, so the story goes, a deadly trip to the Dunny. There are plenty of stories of nobles dying on the bog. George II of Great Britain died of an aortic dissection after basting a grumpy, while Edmund Ironside of England and Wenceslaus III of Bohemia are said to have been assassinated while punishing the proverbial porcelain. Although these uh, these last two, they very well may be uh, apocryphal. There are, there are plenty of historians who think that these stories are, are a great big load of sh- uh, um, uh, a load of the last thing that Edmund and Wenceslaus are said to have been dealing with when they were supposedly assassinated. But Godfrey the Fourth story is much more reliably sourced. And while historians argue over the where he was killed in broad terms, was it Utrecht? Was it Antwerp? Was it Flardingen, Um In specific terms. Uh, Everyone agrees. Everyone agrees on where he was killed on the old thunderbox, mate. Godfrey was the husband of Matilda of Tuscany, one of the most important figures in Italian medieval history, although the two of them didn't get on all that well. Uh, And he spent much of his time going about doing the things that good dukes do, fighting on behalf of his liege lord, the Holy Roman Emperor Henry IV. But he obviously made himself some powerful enemies while he was doing this, because in 1076, someone hired an assassin to kill him. And this assassin struck during a time and place that should be sacred and sacrosanct. A place that you can retreat from the world and its worries, where you can relax and unwind and reflect in peace and maybe play a game or two, a Marvel snap, on the toilet. A proud history of which you can listen to. Episode 139. Get across it. One of my finest works. Anyway, while Godfrey was... Uh, taken the Browns to the Super Bowl, uh, his assassin didn't kick in the door and stab him in the chest. Oh, no. This assassin is said to have hid in the privy itself, in the chute that all the foul effluvium would be deposited. Here is a man dedicated to his craft, I tell you what. Anyway, after laying in wait and finally finding himself eye to eye with Godfrey's ass winking at him atop the dunny hole, the assassin struck, stabbing Godfrey from below with a spear. And one historian noted that a spear, quote, seems to be the most practical choice, which makes sense, I suppose, a very astute observation from this historian. You wouldn't want to get too close, would you? I mean, what do you want? You, You want the assassin to wipe his bum for him as well? And I understand, right, that the world of medieval politics was, it was unforgiving. It was cutthroat, right? Assassins everywhere. You've got to watch out for yourself if if you're a powerful noble. But while there's no doubt that the world of medieval politics was cutthroat, I don't think any of us really expected it to also be stab ass. Poor old Godfrey, he died of his wounds. What a way to go. You think you're going to be murdering a brown snake, and in the end, it's, it's you that gets murdered. And his death upset the local power balance a bit, but Henry IV stepped in to smooth things over and history marched on, leaving Godfrey as one of the few confirmed notable historical deaths to have taken place on the toilet. But while we're talking about kings and dukes dying on the toilet, we better not forget about the most famous king of all to die atop the porcelain throne. The king, Elvis Presley himself you might remember in a previous weirdest deaths episode uh, part two episode 174 get across it we talked about the french playwright moliere who died after collapsing and hemorrhaging multiple times while performing a play Well, the Baroque composer Jean-Baptiste Lully also died due to his unflinching dedication to performance, and what's more, these two were actually very good mates. Lully and Molière worked on ballets together, and Lully was very famous in his own right for his many operas, as well as for being a talented dancer. Born in Italy in 1632, Louis moved to France around 1646 and his musical talent ended up catching the eye of the young king, Louis XIV, who would go on to be known as the immensely powerful Sun King. Louis rose through the royal court and did very well for himself under Louis's patronage, writing all sorts of music from dances to marches to ballets to operas and was inventive and innovative with his musical form. He also loved to put on a show for everyone. His ballets in particular were real spectacles, and people flocked to see them performed in all their lavish glory. Eventually, and sadly, um, he did lose the favour of Louis XIV when it emerged that Lully may have uh, enjoyed the intimate company of other gentlemen, something that the French king took an unfortunately dim view of, But nonetheless, Lully put on a special performance of his famous work, Tee to celebrate the king recovering from surgery, but this performance ended up being the death of him. While he was up on stage, conducting the orchestra with passion and fervour, using a great big stick that he banged on the floor rather than the little baton that you see conductors use today, Lully accidentally banged his own foot rather than the floor so hard that he ended up injuring himself. And the injury ended up being bad enough for gangrene to set into the wound, meaning that the leg needed to be amputated. But remember before how I said that Lily was a talented dancer? He refused to let the doctors take his leg off because he didn't want to be prevented from dancing. And I uh, I, I suppose he got his wish because he was able to dance on that leg until the day that he died, which was not very long after the gangrene set in, you won't be surprised to learn. So Moliere hemorrhaged on stage and died, and Lully, his mate, injured his own foot so badly while performing that it killed him. Bloody hell, these Baroque artists went hard. Captain Lewis Fenton, born in 1780, was a British military man who had fought for king and country as a captain in the 55th Regiment of Foot. I don't know exactly which campaigns he was involved with in the regiment, but between 1800 and 1820, it was deployed everywhere from the West Indies to the Netherlands to South Africa. So Fenton was probably a very well-travelled bloke by the time he retired from military service, and look, soldiering is a dangerous job. It seems that once he retired from his time as a soldier, Fenton led a much quieter lifestyle. He settled down in Huddersfield in northern England, he was elected to Parliament as a Whig MP, and he took pleasure in a rather more pastoral lifestyle. Outside his country home, he kept cattle and grew vegetables, which sounds idyllic after all that time as a soldier and you would think that the most dangerous part of his life was well and truly behind him. After all, being a soldier in the military has to be more dangerous, surely, than living in a nice country manner and growing turnips. Well, no, not in Captain Fenton's case, as this tragic article from the Preston Chronicle in 1833 tells us. <coughs> On Wednesday, November the 27th, the town of Huddersfield was thrown into the greatest consternation in consequence of a report that Captain Fenton, MP for that borough, had fallen out of an upper window in his house and been so dreadfully injured as not to be likely to recover. The excitement was much increased by vague rumours being circulated as to the cause of the lamented gentleman's melancholy death. Mary Stead, the housemaid of Captain Fenton, said that she went upstairs into the garret and found it in the same state as usual, but the window, which opened at the top, was wide open. There was a little chair under the window, which was always placed there. He often went into the garret to see if the cows were right. He had not been well lately. Mr William Wilkes, surgeon of Huddersfield, examined him and found a wound about three inches in length on the prominent part of the forehead, just above the right eye. On further examination, he found an extensive fracture of the skull, a portion of the brain protruded, which he removed. The captain could speak. Wilkes asked him some questions, which he answered in a very incoherent manner. On his asking him how he was, he shook hands with him most cordially. Wilkes knew of nothing which could cause excitement. When he last saw the deceased, he was in excellent spirits. Wilkes produced some notes in the handwriting of Mr. Fenton, for a speech which he was to have made at a meeting of Mr. Wilberforce's friends, which had been written by Mr. Fenton as late as nine o'clock on Tuesday, which proved him to be of sound mind. Mr. Wilkes, after he had given his evidence, mentioned some conversation which he had had with Mrs. Fenton, in which she had stated that her husband was in the habit of going to the garret, whence it was supposed that he had fallen, for the purpose of looking out the window into a piece of ground where some turnips were growing, to see that none of his cows were trespassing in it. So how about that? Poor old Fenton fell out of his window and died while checking on his turnips, making sure the cows weren't getting into them, the poor bugger. After a long career as a soldier, the thing that brought him undone was turnips. And that, you would think, must be the only example of a British Member of Parliament coming to an untimely end because of turnips. How many parliamentarians, after all, could possibly have died turnip-related deaths? Surely Captain Fenton is the only unfortunate example of this? Nope. Nope. Sir William Payne Galway, the member for Thirsk, proudly served his constituency for almost three decades, between 1851 and 1880. He retired that year in 1880. The bloke's in his 70s. I mean, fair enough. He's uh, he's, he's, he's done his bit. And so he gave his life over to more recreational pursuits, as befitted a country gentleman. For instance, he'd go out shooting. After all, someone's got to teach these blasted pheasants and ducks a lesson. Put them in their place. What, what? However... His career as a huntsman was cut short one day in 1881. And you're thinking, oh oh dear, what manner of fearsome beast did he encounter? Was he torn to pieces by a wild animal? Did a particularly aggressive goose savagely maul him to death? No, no. According to a news report in the Northern Echo, while Galway (coughs) was out shooting in the parish of Bagby in crossing a turnip field, fell with his body onto a turnip, sustaining severe internal injuries. Galway tripped over and landed on a turnip which busted him up so badly that he died. Even being armed with a shotgun didn't help, so much for all the people going around saying that a good guy with a gun is the only way to stop a bad turnip without a gun. In fairness, look, the bloke was 73 or 74. He was an old fella. He wasn't in peak physical condition. So a fall like this, it can be devastating for people at that age. But all the same, what a way to go falling on a turnip. Look, you can spin it for sure. You can spin it. He died in a hunting accident. Sounds like he was attacked by a bear or eaten by a tiger or something. You know, just don't give people the details. Died in a hunting accident. Sure, we won't mention that he was, of all things, slain by a turnip and for that matter, was the second British MP to die in an unfortunate turnip-related incident. These days, well over a million people are killed on the road every single year. Cars are very bloody dangerous things, and unfortunately, people seem all too ready to forget that. But then again, with about a billion and a half vehicles driving on the world's roadways, I guess it's, it's unsurprising that there are going to be so many accidents and deaths. There are just too many cars for us to avoid it today. But this fact makes the death of Mary Ward all the more tragic, because she was killed by a car in 1869, the first person in history to die this way. Ward, who was born in 1827 as Mary King, was Irish. She was a scientist and a bloody good one too. She was into all sorts of stuff, principally optics, astronomy, uh, also entomology. Uh, She was involved in the construction of what was at the time the world's largest reflecting telescope, the so-called Leviathan of Parsonstown. Her sketches as the telescope was being built helped to restore it years later after her death. Um, Her cousin, the science William Parsons, was principally responsible for the telescope and he aided Ward in exploring her interest in science by connecting her with other scientists that he knew and worked with. Um, And it wasn't just telescopes that she was into either. She wasn't just examining the heavens. Ward also made extensive use of magnifying glasses and microscopes to aid her in her study of smaller things, things like insects. In fact, She was so skilled with microscopes and preparing specimens for microscopic examination that other scientists would commission her to aid them with their own work with microscopes. Now, of course, as a woman in science, she had a very rough time of it, and she was turned away from universities and scientific societies despite her immense skill and knowledge – Uh, Although she did manage to get herself on the mailing list for the Royal Astronomical Society, one of only three women to do so at the time. And one of the other women was Queen Victoria, so I don't even really know if that counts. Um, She wrote a bunch of books too, most of them centred on microscopes and the worlds that they revealed, and she had to publish them herself because, once again, as a woman, publishing houses weren't interested in her work, which is a terrible bloody shame. Think of how many... Brilliant minds have been shunned and ignored over the millennia. Think of all the insights and the knowledge that we've missed out on because because of the terrible discrimination that women used to face at the hands of men, and of course still do to this very day, especially in fields like science. Anyway, Ward's death is a tragic one, of course, but uh, also one that stands out as extremely unusual for the time period in which she lived. The sons of her cousin, William Parsons, he of the Leviathan of Parsonstown, they built a steam-powered car, something that never really caught on, to be honest. Steam-powered cars weren't very efficient, they weren't very fast, and they were also extremely heavy, so heavy that they destroyed the roads they drove on. Uh, but one day, right, um, the young Parsons boys took Ward and her husband along for a ride in their new invention, and while driving around a corner poor old ward was thrown out of the car itself. She fell out of the car and landed under its wheels and as I mentioned before steam-powered cars are heavy. She was crushed to death instantly the poor woman at least it was a quick death I suppose and because of this tragic accident she became the first person in history ever to be killed in a motor vehicle accident. Today fatal car crashes are far too common to be considered unusual, which is a a damning fact in and of itself. But back in 1869, they were unheard of. So even if Mary Ward's death wasn't all that weird by today's standards, as the first person to ever have been killed by a car, Ward's death was, at the time, not just weird or unusual, but completely unique. As an absolutely fascinating figure from 19th century European history, we could and probably will eventually do an entire episode on Empress Elizabeth of Austria. Elizabeth, or Sisi as she was nicknamed, married Austrian Emperor Franz Josef I at the age of just 16 and she had a long and complicated and and very unconventional career as Empress. At first, she struggled to fit into the Habsburg court, but eventually found her way and had a significant effect on the governance of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. But her life was also filled with tragedy. One of her children died in infancy, and another was involved in a murder-suicide pact. Um, And as she got older, she she became extremely concerned with her appearance. Well into her old age, she was starving herself half to death and wearing extremely tight corsets so as to retain a youthful figure. And it is one of these corsets that comes into her unusual death, although probably not in the way that you're immediately thinking. It wasn't through the tightening of the corset, but rather the loosening of it. Here's the story. In 1898, when Elizabeth was 60 years old, she was on an incognito trip to Geneva in Switzerland, avoiding the publicity and the attention that often came with such a high-ranking imperial visit. However... Someone, uh, someone working at her hotel let it slip that. The Empress of Austria was indeed staying there, and so people in Geneva knew that she was about. And this was bad news for poor Sissy, because one afternoon on the 10th of September 1898, a young anarchist named Luigi Lucini, who had been following Elizabeth for days, finally decided the time was right to strike. Elizabeth had rebuffed the police guard that the Genevan authorities had offered her, And so was walking with a single lady-in-waiting along the shore of Lake Geneva on her way to catch a steamship across the lake. And as she was walking, Lucini approached and pretended to stumble while he was nearby, bumping into the Empress very briefly before continuing on his way. And a moment later, Elizabeth collapsed. Her lady-in-waiting raised the alarm, Elizabeth was aided by a passing coachman as she got up and walked the 100 metres or so to the steamship, clearly not in a good way. She fell in and out of consciousness as the steamship set off, and so her lady-in-waiting opened up her dress and cut the strings of her corset to allow her to breathe easily. But this didn't seem to help much, and when the lady-in-waiting noticed a small brown stain on Elizabeth's clothing, she went to the captain and had him turn the boat around and dock in Geneva once again. Elizabeth was carried back to her hotel by six sailors who had made an improvised stretcher out of sailcloth and oars. But by the time they arrived at the hotel, the empress was dead, with a clear blood stain now spreading out from her chest. How did this happen? Well, it was as you've probably already figured out: the anarchist Lucini. When he stumbled into her, he actually stabbed her he stabbed her in the heart he used a thin tiny razor sharp blade that he had made himself 10 centimeters long more or less a large needle this blade had stabbed into elizabeth's chest through a rib a lung and then into her heart itself but you're thinking well hang on hang on one second if that's the case How the hell did she manage to walk a hundred meters to the boat? How did she not die instantly bleeding out on the shore of the lake? Well, of course, it was because of her extremely tight corset. It served to compress the wound to the point that the internal bleeding was slowed to a tiny trickle. Her heart kept beating, and despite what should have been a terrible wound, she didn't die immediately. But then, of course, she was taken aboard the steamship and her corset was loosened, and that was that. She began to hemorrhage internally, and she was dead minutes later. It wouldn't have mattered had the corset not been loosened. This wound was almost certainly a fatal one. But it is interesting that despite suffering what should have been an instantly fatal wound, poor old Empress Elizabeth's habit of wearing tight corsets actually kept her alive for a little longer than she would have lived otherwise. And to finish off this instalment of history's weirdest deaths, our tenth and final death is uh, a nice quick one to wrap things up. Uh, It does break the... Vague rule that we have on half our History um, about only covering events from 1989 or beforehand. But we've broken the rule before. And honestly, this story is that funny that I don't mind cheating a little bit. So for this one, we're going all the way back to 1993. Back to when we were watching Jurassic Park and listening to Whoop, There It Is by Tag Team. And it's back in those heady days, 30 years ago. 30, oh boy, 30 years ago that we meet the um, uh, hero, I guess, of our story, the Canadian lawyer, Gary Hoy. Hoy worked for the Toronto law firm Holden Day Wilson, and he had a little party trick that he loved to pull off to impress and entertain, I suppose, the new intakes to the firm. Holden Day Wilson had its offices on the 24th floor of a Torontonian skyscraper with great big floor-to-ceiling windows. Very impressive view of the city around it, of course. And for some reason, I really don't know why, Hoy liked to personally demonstrate the tensile strength of the glass in these windows, and he did this in the most bizarre way that you can imagine. He ran at them... And hurled himself into them. And every time he did this, well, every time except one, I suppose, uh, he would bounce off them harmlessly and the new intakes would be, I don't know, impressed? I guess they'd all pull out their brick-like 10-kilogram mobile phones from the pockets of their high-waisted baggy suit pants and call a friend to exclaim what they'd just seen, describing the demonstration, no doubt, as both hella fly and majorly dope booyah, baby, I don't know why Hoy had this obsession with demonstrating how tough the window panes were when onboarding new employees, but I'll tell you this, he really did prove his point in the most emphatic way possible. Because on the 9th of July, 1933, as Gary Hoy rammed himself for the very last time into a window pane on the 24th floor of this skyscraper, the window popped out of its frame Hoy was absolutely right about its tensile strength. The glass didn't break, but the frame sure as hell did, and you can only imagine Hoy's very brief sense of surprise as he hurtled down to the pavement below. Hoy's death was filed under the category of accidental auto-defenestration. They very likely had to label a new folder for the paperwork for this one, I would say. Holden Day Wilson, in the wake of Hoy's death, were overflowing with tributes for this poor bloke, describing him as one of the best and brightest. Which, uh, hmm, I would, uh, I would personally call into question, given some of his behaviours while at the company. But then again, the firm did shut down three years later, so maybe he, maybe he really was essential. Fair enough, really, after all. If there's one way to accurately describe Gary Hoy, it certainly would be as a high-flying lawyer. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is it for the fourth installment of History's Weirdest Deaths here on half Hour History. I'd love to do another one, uh, but I do need your help. If you have come across a weird death in your travels, please let me know. Send it in, history.net. You can use the contact form there to get in touch with that, or any other uh, topic suggestions, content ideas, or, or indeed just feedback. Uh, it's been great to have people uh, emailing me in every week. I get a ton of emails every week. I'm sorry that I can't reply to them all, but it is great to hear from people. Uh, and I'd love to hear from you too. Uh, especially interested in learning how people have come across the show um uh, how interested you are in getting through all the old episodes do you listen to them as they come out any data you can give me on how i can make this show better uh would is is greatly appreciated um because uh, look i want this show to stick around for a long time and i want it to be the best show that it can be so if you've got ideas or feedback or anything at all that you think i should know please do get in touch uh, if you want to support the show, of course you can do that via Patreon. That's the best way to do it. Um, and by doing so, you'll gain access to all sorts of secret uh, behind the, behind the scenes exclusive stuff, uh, starting with merch uh, and going all the way down to things like show notes, behind the scenes stuff. And if you uh, if you fancy getting your hands on some official Half Ass History merch, uh, then you can do that as well. Just follow the link on the website halfasshistory.net. That'll take you through to the T Public website. And if you're interested in making some unofficial merch, well, just go and buy a blank T-shirt and a sharpie and write half assed history on it i don't mind you going around in bootleg half ass history gear because it'll help you tell your friends tell your enemies and tell people about him you largely feel ambivalent as they go around and ask why you've scrawled the name of a tin pot history podcast across a blank t-shirt you can tell them well half ass history.net get across it all the uh, all the episodes uh, the best episodes to start with are in the podcast description you love to see it anyway I'm uh, going to close things out, of course, with a, the with a question posed on Reddit. Uh, this one is for all the fans of herbal supplements out there. It comes to us from Word Seven One Three, and it's about uh, it's about the Roman emperor we talked about today. <clears throat> Was Valerian the sleepiest Roman emperor?